How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Kathleen Tarrant, thank you for being here for one of these I Don't Believe in That God episodes. <laughs> Thanks for having me, and I love the title. Yeah, I like the title, too. And, you know, no pressure, but you are following up a minister in the Satanic Temple. That was the most recent one that I did. Oh, that's so much cooler. <laughs> Not to psych you out or anything. No, uh, absolutely just psyched me out. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll be fine. These episodes are a chance for me to talk to people who are essentially less theistic than me in one way or another, all the way to atheists, you know, but, but really kind of anywhere in between about why they're not. And when they say they don't believe in God or are agnostic about God or whatever, like, what is it that they don't believe? What is it specifically that they're agnostic about? I just find that stuff really compelling. Obviously it's, I'm not here to debate you or convince you. I'm, I'm here to learn. And then uh, usually it's interesting to compare and contrast um, toward the end. And you also are welcome to ask me any clarifying questions that you'd like, um, but no pressure. And then there's also episodes on the other side of this that are usually called something like worries about progressive Christianity or worries about deconstruction, where I talk to someone who is like either more theistic, that's not really true, but to my right sort of theologically or or whatever, or affirms more or a more conservative uh, Christianity and then I get to do kind of the same thing with them. So I see these as mirror episode types, uh, and I really love being kind of plopped down in the middle of it all. So thank you for being a part of that. Yeah, stoked. So by way of introduction to the listeners, probably the most interesting and relevant point of connection will end up being that you investigated and wrote a huge piece for The Stranger, which is the local alt-weekly paper here in Seattle about Mars Hill Church, Mark Driscoll, the record label and kind of huge effect on Christian music at that time. And it also served as this history of the previous 20 years of kind of Christian and Christian adjacent rock music in Seattle. I'm hoping we can find connection points between that work and your own story when it makes sense. 
but you weren't raised in Seattle and you weren't raised Protestant, right? No, I was raised in Denver and I was raised Catholic and a very chill version of Catholicism where my dad took me to church because he promised his mom I'd be raised Catholic. And my mom was raised Episcopal and did not really believe in any of it. So they were, it was kind of, we just, we went to church every Sunday and I didn't get really deeply involved in the Catholic church until I was in high school. So tell me about those early years then like pre high school. Do you know that your parents are not really into it? Like, can you tell that your dad is, does he tell you that? Do he tell you later? Do you pick up on it? I mean, Catholicism is so interesting because there are like people who are obviously very, very into it, but it's such like a huge religion. I always say it's like the the most bureaucratic faith you can be in. Like that's probably um, checks out. Yeah. Not knowing very much about Islam. I'm guessing Catholicism takes the cake. (laughs) Yeah, it does. There's, you know, we have like a central governing body. (laughs) Like you're kind of one of a billion And you can kind of just float around and no one really is like asking you too much about what you believe. That's a little bit rude. Mm. Most people I knew just kind of went to mass every Sunday and then you didn't talk about it. Like, and so my dad, uh, he never told me like, I don't really believe in this, but you know, he also wasn't talking to me about religion outside of church. It was just kind of something we did before we went and got breakfast at the Jewish deli every Sunday. Nice little interfaith Sunday morning there. Yeah. You know, (laughs) also I do feel like Catholicism and Judaism have a lot more in common. Catholicism always felt to me more like my heritage than it felt like my religion. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But then in high school, you kind of key more into it. So, so what happened there? Um, I almost failed out of my public high school my freshman year because I just wasn't doing my homework. I wish it was because I was doing something cool like drugs or, you know, drinking with the cool kids, but I just was not doing my homework because I didn't feel like it. And I had undiagnosed ADD. Then my parents decided to move me to a smaller school. Uh, and the small school that was available was a brand new all girls Jesuit high school. So they put me in Catholic school Yeah, and I ended up really loving it. I ended up doing really well academically and then really meeting a a ton of like people I really loved. I loved going to an all girls school. And through that, I, you know, I was already confirmed. Like I was definitely a Catholic and I just like really into it, really into the theology. I had like one of my favorite teachers of all time was a former nun who was my theology teacher. And she just kind of encouraged me to really like think and like investigate. And I was always kind of into fantasy and sci-fi and frankly, Catholic theology is a lot of like world building and lore and there are saints to get to know. And there's just like history yeah. and it, it be, it's fun. It's like, actually, if you're into that kind of thing, if you're into Tolkien, it's not too much of a jump to like get into all the like papal history so I think I kind of got into it from there and then ended up being really religious like for a long time, actually. And my parents were really surprised. The old uh, rebelling the opposite way that that us evangelicals did. Yeah. Yep, exactly. My parents were too liberal and permissive. So I became deeply Catholic. Yeah. It's really funny because so many of my friends have gone the sort of, you know, post post religious route and many of them are raising kids and part of me is looking forward to like 10 years from now when, when we're having beers and they're like, man, my kid ended up rebelling by becoming ultra religious. Like, yeah, there's no way out of it, man. 
Yeah. No, it's I've told my friends that who like have left the church, a, a really big chunk of my friends are ex evangelicals. And I like told that to a couple of my friends, my friend, Stephanie Drury. I feel like you must have met her. I, I, we, I know I've met her husband and we have mutual friends. She's the stuff Christian culture likes. Person. Yeah. Yeah. And when her kids were littler, I used to joke that they were going to become like ultra conservative evangelical Christians. And she'd be like, don't, you're cursing me. Yeah. They did not. They're like 18 and 21. Now, okay. And they are not. That didn't come to pass. She, she escaped. She escaped that fate. But I was like, you can't. I. That's how I did it. I became conservative. And my mom and I would argue about like social issues. And I took the conservative side and she took the liberal side and she was so frustrated with me. I bet, yeah. Well, I will just say this briefly because I like to bring in careful research when I, when I know it and that it, and it applies. And actually the research shows that the most likely religious identification of your child will be whatever your identification is. So even though the trope is that kids always rebel, uh, it might not be true at 16, but I think it's something like at 25 or something like that. So when they're, they're yeah. kind of into their emerging adulthood, they are most likely by far to identify with whatever their parents identified with when they were children. So that I, let's not, you know, it's funny to joke about it, but it's not actually true statistically. No. And it is funny to, to joke about, but it is, that is kind of the, the one liner I use is that I rebelled against my liberal parents by becoming conservative. Mm-hmm. When you say you got really religious, like define that, what, what do you mean? How, how would you know from the outside looking in that you had really actually gotten quite religious? Yeah. I mean, I think there's all the hallmarks. Um, this is around the time like early aughts when actually I feel like evangelical Christianity and Catholicism were kind of becoming a little bit closer to each other. Mm. It was like Rob Bell was huge and there's kind of that like interest in the evangelical church in kind of the history of Judaism and Catholicism. Like a lot of my evangelical friends were really into like Hebrew all of a sudden. Yeah, like a bit bit more of a scholarly kind of like these yeah. They were they were still a little left of center, but you wouldn't have known that from a Catholic perspective. And they got oh. really into like reading N.T. Wright and various scholars and incorporating that stuff. So, yeah, I guess there would be some kind of crosstalk there. And and I do feel like some of them like the kind of the hallmarks of like kind of uh, displaying like my faith were actually quite evangelical in the way that like I was going to youth groups mm-hmm. I wasn't swearing. I didn't drink. I mean, like a lot of my peers didn't anyway, because I was friends with a bunch of dorks because I was in theater and all the humans. It's not like I was hanging out with kids who were doing a ton anyway. I, you know, decided not to swear at all my first year of college because I wanted to have, well, one, my dad always said it wasn't creative, which really stuck with me, which is hilarious. And two, I was like, I want, you know, I was doing very, like all my words should honor God. I was just like very, and like every, I was going to church. I was going to mass three times a week. I was like on the liturgical team. I was just, and theology is my life. I ended up majoring in it in college. And if you talk to me, you found out I wore like my Saint medal and it was my whole life. This is also when Catholics were kind of more allowed to kind of talk about a personal relationship, Mm. which is very evangelical. And the personal relationship stuff, I, I'm actually kind of grateful that, especially kind of the younger Catholic generation from when I was when I was growing up in it, 
kind of took that evangelical language a little bit because the obscurity of Catholic language around um, kind of how to talk about what you're getting out of your faith practice is just, you know, it wasn't really that accessible. And by the time I was, you know, a young adult and very Catholic, I was using evangelical language to discuss a relationship with God that I took very seriously. Yeah. Cause that language was better basically. It was better. I mean, it's not maybe as like beautiful in some ways, sure. like when you're, when you speak, when you're talking about how you kind of have found Catholic writers to be more helpful, or at least like there's, there's more discussion there. I'm like, yeah, Catholics love to write and talk <laughs> about everything. It's, it is the most academic talk around, talk around a thing until you've encased it, but never touch it. Like, and that's, and that's kind of, I've always liked the balance between, I think, like, especially American evangelicals need a little bit more Catholicism. And I think American Catholics need a little bit more of that, like evangelical, like it's okay to just like have a faith practice that is for yourself, that isn't entirely academic and isn't entirely based on tradition. Before we get into your actual theology studies, which I'm really intrigued by, like, can you Give me an example of like a moment or an experience that is representative of the height of that kind of personal piety and really feeling like you were locked in. Like, do you have a memory or an example like that? Uh, there's a retreat that Jesuit high schools and some just regular Catholic diocesan high schools do called Kairos. Um, you go on it when you're a junior, it's shrouded in secrecy and you lead it when you're a senior basically you're uh, the seniors give a bunch of talks so like and they're all the same they're all the same like topics so every kairos has like the exact same kind of set of talks but different people give it and they're like prompts mm. and when i was a senior i led a kairos and i gave the talk how to be a christian and you had to like choose a song to play before you talked and a song to play after you talked mm. and i remember choosing like a reliant k song and I remember writing that speech and being like, this is going to be like my whole life is going to be like, kind of like this. Like I was so sure I told a bunch of 16 year olds how to be a Christian at 18. Yeah. <laughs> so I <was> obviously <laughs> so qualified. <laughs> I, I so really qualified. resonate with that though. And I, I would almost guarantee that any listener who was really involved in their evangelical youth group, and I, my guess is that this is more a developmental thing than it is an evangelicalism specific thing. Although you're right that evangelicalism as a subculture was gaining so much steam in America that it did, it did kind of bleed over into Catholic spaces, right. And, and some mainline spaces as well. So it, hard, hard to parse those, but that sense that me and, and this whole group of friends, you know, around like that 15 to 18 sort of range, like, yeah, like, of course, we are locked in on the main fundamental truths and the most important precepts, the most important life trajectories, like the most important decisions to make, like we will not have sex before we get married. We will uh, whatever we will be involved in these kind of faith communities. We're going to be a part of this thing. Um, that's going to change the world maybe slowly or whatever, but like, obviously we're locked in. And now 
I'm 40 and I'm looking around and I'm like, maybe it's hard to know because there's always a selection bias of who you stay friends with and whatnot. But, but I'm thinking conservatively 30% of the people at my youth group or evangelical high school are still practicing evangelicals in my friend group. It's gotta be 5%, maybe 10. And that has been one of the most kind of destabilizing, but also interesting kind of lenses uh, and, and sort of through lines in this entire, you know, last 20 plus years of my life of sort of what we now call deconstruction and, and this whole kind of ex-evangelical, post-evangelical movement. It felt so ubiquitous and so obvious that we would all obviously be doing this. Yeah, that moment of of like being sure also feels very just like young yeah right exactly so that's the developmental part yeah yeah and i think that like you know even my friends who weren't raised in any church have that like my friends who spent their teen years going to like punk shows and like house shows were like we're gonna like you know be in this ethos it's like punk ethos for the rest of our lives and now they have mortgages yeah and like go to bed at 10 and you know we're so primed at that age to grab onto something that feels bigger than us and wear it and be like, this is like always going to fit me. And I, I know exactly what I have. And I think that that's beautiful. Like I look back on that moment for me and I'm not like you dumb idiot. I like, I have a lot of like love for her. Cause also I was so earnest about writing this speech. Cause I wanted to teach like 16 year olds how to be a good Christian because I really thought I had figured it out. And I think that that's like so precious. Like that's like such a precious like thing that like I would love to encourage that in young people more. Like yeah, like give bad advice from a good place. Like that's that's lovely. I'm not mad at that, but it is like the moment where I was I I couldn't if you had told me that, you know, what I was 18, that in 3 years I would have like stopped believing in God, uh, at least like the Christian God. I would have thought you were insane. Sure. I could not, I could not fathom that that would be where I ended up. So tell us about the theology studies. So you, you majored in theology in college and, and uh, what were you into? What were you drawn to? Like before things start to shift, I'm just curious, like what were, who were your guys or whatever at that stage? So I wasn't necessarily drawn to like any theology in particular. I was really drawn to expressions of theology. So my actual major was theology and film, which is so silly. I mean, (laughs) the fact that you became a music writer, I mean, probably like there's something cool there. And I'm a big, I'm a huge film nerd. So for me, that sounds great. It was so fun. I just, you know, watched a lot of movies Mm -hmm. (laughs) and wrote a lot of papers about the theological expressions in them. Yeah. I was really uh, drawn to Catholic mystics, like we were talking about, especially because so many of them were women. And I became really obsessed with like just women in the Catholic church. So I basically wanted to, because I always wanted women to be able to be clergy. I thought that that was the silliest thing in the world. So I basically just spent my entire life reading or like my academic life, like reading all the like old theologians and kind of debunking them. That was like my. Yeah. So, I mean, feminist theology, essentially like. a Yeah. Which wasn't as much of a thing in the Catholic church. It is now 
like it's, it's especially the past 20 years, it's been, you know, growing quite a bit, but there's not really a fire under Catholic theology anymore. Like it's been around too long. Like it did its thing. Interesting. Like evangelicals have the fire under them because they're trying to like change the world. Catholics are like, we already did that. It actually didn't go that great. And everyone's mad at us. We actually have already correctly described the world. And most people are unwilling to recognize that we got it right. (laughs) We took 500 years to apologize to Galileo and we're fine with that. Yeah. Okay. So what starts to, what starts to change it for you? Where, where do the wheels start to fall off? When I look back, I wasn't unrecognizable. I, Like, for instance, when it came to abortion, I never wanted it to be illegal, even when I was like conservative, because I was like, well, that's separation of church and state, number one. And number two, like, we don't have enough social services for parents anyway. So and I was like, you should probably figure out poverty before we start taking away access to things. So, like, I honestly still kind of thought the same way that I do now. Mm -hmm. Um, I just kind of had like, you know, my personal beliefs around stuff were a little bit different. And I say that because the shift was really small. And I think that that's unusual. My friends who have left churches, you know, there's, it's really hard and traumatic. And um, I, for some reason, it happened really slowly for me, a Catholic college, but I hung out mostly with townies, which is funny to call my friends townies, uh, who were evangelical. So like when I left the Catholic church, most of my friends weren't even Catholic, Hmm. I think there's something really applicable there in so many people's stories. Like I talk a lot about plausibility structures as one of the most helpful explanatory lenses for me to kind of understand, for instance, like especially Trump and evangelicals like that. That's one where it just it doesn't make sense until you for me anyway, until I start thinking in terms of. Oh, like if you get enough people around you who all agree, then it matters sort of less what the thing is that we are agreeing on. Yeah. And it matters more the proportion of people around you who agree. And the more the higher proportion that is, the more plausible the claim seems to be. I think that this happens on the left and the right. I think it's just a universal sort of human psychological thing. You know, I think there's like a version of that with sort of extreme gender and sexuality ideology where like, you know, it seems plausible that very unlikely visions of that are accurate if you live in Seattle surrounded by, you know, kind of flaming liberals around gender and sexuality. Um, But if you didn't live here, then it would seem quite unplausible to you. And all of that is pretty unrelated to the data and the evidence It's like just a thing about who are you around, essentially. I think it's hard to figure out what you actually believe if you are in a group of people whose relationship with you is dependent on what you believe. So the pain I've seen my friends who have left churches who were their whole lives, right? Like, or my friends who've been in marriages where one person leaves the church and one person doesn't. Mm -hmm. And like that, I can say this in the most cynical way. I diversified my (laughs) friends. And more than that, I was Catholic in a family that wasn't like, not really, you know, my parents didn't believe what I believed. I had friends from childhood that like, you know, when I became Catholic or really Catholic in high school, were like, what? And I stayed friends with them. 
And so I kind of, and the Catholic church is really hard (laughs) to get totally absorbed into. That's not how we function as a religion. Like we're McDonald's, you can go to any city and go to mass and it's going to be the exact same mass as you're going to get anywhere else. Like this is a, a, it is a church body, not like little communities. I mean, some people I think do have that, but that's never been my experience. So like when I stopped going to mass, no one was like checking up on me being like, like it was, it's a small town. So I had a couple friends be like, what's going on? But the cracks started to show for me in academic ways. Uh, There were theologies that did not make sense to me. Uh, Trinitarian theology broke my brain right in half. And the thing is with it is that there are certain fundamental truths in the Catholic Church that you have to believe in. And not as many as people think. You can like you can believe in abortion and gay marriage and still be a Catholic. Yeah. My, the Jesuit that I was hanging out with for a couple of years, uh, Paul Fitterer, he was like, he had this, this kind of way that he described where he didn't think that the Pope Pius teaching on birth control was actually binding for Catholics. He, and I don't know, it felt kind of loopholey to me as a non-Catholic, but he said something like the way that, that the way it technically works is whatever the Pope says has to be confirmed by the church or the bishops or whatever. And he's like, it never actually got that much support. And so in his mind, so I don't know, you might think very similarly, he was, I mean, he's still alive. He's, he's the shit, but his farewell homily when he retired at like 88 from Seattle preparatory school, which is a Jesuit high school in town was like, I think the church is ready for women priests. And I think the church is ready for, diocesan priests should be able to get married. Those were like his things. And he, and he's like, peace, I'm out of here. You know, he just like dropped the mic on that. that. And, and so you, yeah, those guys exist uh, within the Catholic church. And I almost became a Catholic. There's a different episode about that. If people want to go back to it. Uh, And if I had, I would have like been from the get go, like a liberal dissenting Catholic on a bunch of these kind of social and sexuality questions. Um, so you can do that. And there are even like, there's like a Tacoma uh, Jesuit parish that has a rainbow flag out front that is a Catholic church. So there, there is like, we can't really understand that as Protestants, that there would be so much wiggle room. You know, we just think of power as like, I think more immutable, maybe. I don't know what that is about, but. This is what I mean about bureaucracy. So it's, it's a loophole. But it's not. It's the way it's built. So, like, it's, it's this the uh, the the bug is a feature yeah. essentially, which is one of the reasons I love Catholicism because yeah, you don't actually have to believe in everything to be a Catholic, and thank God because things change, and that's how the Catholic Church is built. It's built to move slowly, and it's also built to allow for a theology of conscience. So that's about as personal as like the Catholic Church gets. Is like your conscience is a theological tool and you, this is why we write everything down so you can go and read what everybody else thinks. It's possible for something like, let's use that example of like birth control to end up becoming more legal or like, you know, more permanent as, as like an instruction, but also you can just not do that and still be Catholic. Like there are only a few things you really have to believe in. 
And they are, you know, the big guys, like the Assumption of Mary, the Trinity, which is what (laughs) broke my brain, uh, the resurrection. And the Trinity is one that when I started studying it, you know, the one plus one plus one equals one, that they're all the same, but they are all different. I could not wrap my head around it. I went to so many priests and was like, give me an analog, like a real world analog for the Trinity. And they couldn't because they're like Neapolitan ice cream. It's like, no, but that's separate. And it's not Mm -hmm. separate. Cause like, but then like, you can't, it's not all vanilla ice cream because like, that's all the same and it has to be different. And I don't know what it was, but it, that like opened a door in my head where I was like, this feels made up Hmm. and like dumb. And I don't know why it, it's just like, I was like, well, I started thinking, okay. And this is the same logic that keeps like women from being priests. You know, this is the like Trinitarian theology. The reason we have a Greek Orthodox church, like we have, we have like ruined people's lives and countries over this, over like, over academic argument. The Eastern Western split theologically isn't, isn't even just Trinitarian versus non-Trinitarian. It's like how to understand Jesus's place in the Trinity. But I think that savvy, as far as I can tell, sort of savvy church historians will also go, yeah, but it's not just like, there were also political things. There were cultural things. Like there was a lot of tension and fissure going on. And that was kind of the, the tip of the spear that kind of split it. But yeah, like theologically it is that it's like, oh, two different ways of understanding how Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. That does seem, that seems silly to me. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, yeah, of course there's always context and oftentimes, you know, religion has been a foil for a lot of other issues, yeah. you know, like the, how we got the Episcopal church, you know, like technically like I'm air quoting theology. Yeah, the uh, dude wanted to get divorced, right? But I, then yeah. I, I wonder too. I would imagine there were also differences there, and you know, other things beyond that simple story. I mean, at this point, the Catholic Church has said to like you can just go to Greek, uh, like a Catholic yeah. can go to a Greek Orthodox class, and that counts. It's been kind of like, awesome to see later, yeah, later generations like popes, and then the patriarch. I think that's the main name of of the various Orthodox churches like, you know, serve each other communion and they're, they're, they're doing work now to sort of, um, unify those, those branches of Christianity and, and to move beyond the, the kind of petty stuff that you're describing. But that is interesting. It's interesting because within Catholicism on some of those big ones, there is so much heft to it because in Catholicism, you have to deal with the magisterium, the teaching of the church, because the teaching of the church is blessed by God specifically. And that's a Catholic problem. That's not a Protestant problem. You know, if I, you know, one day I was like, oh, I don't know about that version of hell or whatever. I just go, well, what did this theologian think? Also a Protestant. I'm switching teams, you know, and it's, it doesn't really, unless, I mean, sometimes you have to leave your church over it. Like, you know, depending on what those things are, but you you're not kind of fighting the man like in capital T capital M the same way it would feel like that in a Catholic setting, I would imagine. Yeah, it's and, you know, I have I have mixed feelings on it, but 
because also I've always struggled with the Protestant church or like every iteration of it because it's so, they're just so much cult of personality, which kind of brings us back to Mars Hill. And like, there's nothing kind of solid there for me. Like anytime I considered, you know, leaving the Catholic church and maybe if I still wanted to like be on the Jesus train, like going to an evangelical church, because I had so many, I had friends who like did church planting, you know? And I, I was just like, it's not, there's nothing, there's just a guy, there's a guy. And I have to agree with that guy. Whereas like in the Catholic church, I get to disagree, like, yeah, it's the man, but it's also like, it's pushing against something solid that I know isn't going to change based on like a bad day. And that for me is more as an academic and academically minded. And I need that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, of like you'd get more of that in Episcopalianism and, and other of the mainline denominations, but what you were actually choosing between in your actual life was Catholicism or evangelicalism is what it sounds like. Yeah. Those were kind of the two things in my life. And honestly, at the end of the day, I really like sat with it, like with like what the kind of Trinity question opened up for me and just to use the language of the day, I did a real period of discernment mm-hmm. and ended up kind of like one day and it was, it's so anticlimactic. I really like woke up. And the other thing is that I had started dating my first serious boyfriend who was an atheist and one of the kindest people I knew. And like, he had a moral code and had never been raised religious. He had never like been churchy. And I think that was one of the things that was holding me back. So I was like, how am I going to know how to be good if I don't have this, like, if it's not, you know, focused on an end goal and if it's not like handed to me and then I kind of, you know, met him and he and I would talk about this stuff and he was totally fine with me being Catholic. And, but I kind of woke up one day and I was like, I don't think I believe in not just this, but like in God. And it was really odd. And I kind of was like, have I ever really believed in God? And I couldn't really answer that. So I did a trial period where I just was like, I'm going to live my life for six months, just fully accepting that there is no God and like, see how I feel about it. And that was 14 years ago. And I just kind of kept living it and it never felt it was, it was painful in a couple ways, obviously there's the death issue mm-hmm. and the, just kind of the finite nature of life has become much more in focus, but I just, it wasn't even that hard. I feel like whenever I, I say this, I feel bad. Cause I know that leaving churches is like sometimes one of the most like traumatic splits people can have. It's a divorce. And for me, it was just kind of what we talked a little bit earlier is that not everyone in my life was kind of around the church. It was always kind of my thing that I did. It was a part of my life, but it wasn't kind of built into my life from childhood. I kind of just started it as an experiment because I couldn't get this little thing out of my head that was just like, this is, this no longer feels right. Like I just, it's, it's not, it's not working. Something's not working. And it felt kind of like, okay. You know, I had a friend reach out to me a couple years later after I posted something about being pro choice. And she was like an old Catholic friend and she was like, you're going to go to hell. And I was like, thank you for your input. You, you, you got the greatest hits at least everybody, everybody gets at least one of those. <laughs> I know. I was one. 
<laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, thank you. I was waiting for that. No one did that to me. So that was like, yeah. that was, I had that classic experience. That was kind of the only real pushback I got. I think most Catholics are like, wait, you didn't go to mass. I thought maybe you just went to a different mass. <laughs> like, Yeah, the, certainly in those, in the religious cultures that are partly ethnic and or cultural, like family cultural, even if it's not specifically tied to a, an ethnic culture, like there does tend to be sort of lower stakes uh, because, I mean, the way that I would think of it is like fewer people believe in the eternal stakes or they believe in it in a way that is less day to day. It's it's sort of less informing the way they see the world, the way they see the people in their lives. And so if the stakes are lower, it, it's the way it feels to me now when I find out that people that I know have deconverted, like officially deconverted or like whatever. I, I go, oh, you know, interesting. Like, I'm curious about it. I don't I don't like worry for their soul, you know, and, and when I did, it was that was so much more distressing which then you got to do something to relieve that distress. So you will remind yourself of what you believe so that your soul's okay or, or, or whatever, you know, like that's like the initial move that you will make. But it's been interesting to be on the other side where the stakes for me are, are no longer about people's eternal destination. The stakes are actually existential, this life stakes. And then I, my assumption is that if God exists and if God is love, then, you know, all, all the basically every shitty thing that a person does in this life can be traced, at least in part, back to something shitty that happened to them or something shitty about the neurology they were born with or, you know, whatever, something in the hand that they're dealt or something done to them. I think our choices are real and we and we have to bear responsibility for them in part because that's the only way that we get better is through being forced to have responsibility for our choices. But I don't think that God, with all the facts, would be like, ah, damned, saved, you know, like that kind of a thing. So that's not an issue. It's just like, oh, will this, you know, if someone leaves the church, I wonder, like, is that going to be good for them or bad for them throughout their life in terms of their own flourishing, in terms of if they have families for their children, in terms of, you know, stuff like that. I don't, I don't worry about hell for them. Yeah. And I think that that's something people are rightfully worried about when they do leave a church is that they're worried about what other people will think of them. I was so lucky that I just didn't really deal with that other than that one Facebook message. And frankly, a lot of my evangelical friends at that point really didn't see Catholicism as Christianity. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true, unfortunately. So they kind of already thought I was. Like, that's really like, funny. Uh, salvation wise. Yeah. Not really, but like they weren't like, oh, no, your eternal soul. They were like, oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. It's not real. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that that, like, that, that reveals it's such a poverty in an evangelical worldview uh, to, to have such a low view of Catholics. But in this case, it's very funny that it led to uh, reduced distress in your own experience. <laughs> it's so funny. I like, I, I got, I mean, God bless everybody. Like everyone's doing their best, but it was so funny. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I, I told my parents, my mom was like, Oh, thank God. And I'm sure. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. My dad didn't care at all. And, you know, I don't 
not believe in God. I think the thing, the thing that's anti, like my leaving the church was anticlimactic because it was started by a, a theological anomaly in my head where I was like, this doesn't make sense. And for some reason, this is like the thread at the sweater at the end of the sweater that I'm going to just tug on. Mm-hmm. Which is a great, that's, that's one of Derrida's analogies. And he's, he's the philosophical founder of the idea of deconstruction, which is sort of, which has a loose uh, association with what we talk about as faith deconstruction for him. Deconstruction is more about like peeking behind the curtain of all the actual causes and games that people are playing, you know, you mean, for instance, like in a church service, like the, the way that the pastor is dressed would be a part of something for Derrida to look at in deconstructing a moment of hearing a sermon. You know, he would talk about the lighting. He would talk about the, the swaying movement and, and all the factors that go into these like manufactured human exchanges that we have. But he uses the sweater analogy, I think, by the way. I've not read Derrida. I've just talked to so many friends who have about deconstruction that I can now basically reconstruct Derrida's thinking. Um, so if I get this wrong, the reason is I haven't read him. But the the sweater thread is is good because he, as I understand it, he says you, you pick one thing, but if you pull on it, it leads to other questions. Well, if the newscaster isn't asking exactly the thing she happens to be curious about right now of her interviewee, why is she asking it? Which then leads to, well, who's paying the producer? So the producer's giving her questions. Why is he giving her those? Oh, well, he is his job. Well, who's paying him? What do they want? You follow the thread. You get all the way back. Back to like Mark Driscoll is a narcissist or you get back to whatever it is, you know, and and like you, you just follow those threads. So it is a really good analogy. Anyway, that's Derrida Corner. We can wrap that up. Now I feel like you have to read him someday. Maybe the, I, yeah. I do like that. You've just had it explained. This is how I. Uh, oh, shit. What was the movie? Oh, I knew the entire plot, like frame by frame of Citizen Kane before I saw it because I had had so many men or boys in high school, just talk to me about why they loved Citizen Kane so much. And I was like, I never have to see it. I ended up seeing it in college. Yeah. But by the time I watched it, I was like, yeah, I know what's going to happen next. Because yeah. this man is like, is like four different boys. Yeah. And in detail, like over a burger at Red Robin, talked at me about Citizen Kane. Well, I want to talk about, the Trinity question. And then I want to talk about like living as if there's no God, I don't, you not necessarily not believing God. I want to get to God, but first I want to ask about Trinity. So let me throw this at you and see what you think. Now, I don't think I would have been this comfortable. I certainly wouldn't have been comfortable with this loose of language 20 years ago when I was the age that you were, when you're talking about this story. But the way I think of the Trinity now, I perked up when you talked about that, because for me, Trinitarian theology is like such a low stakes, like it's so low on the list in my mind. I just think of it as like a bunch of sort of Christian thinkers doing their best to explain their experience and effectively the the three parts of their experience slash kind of how they view the world, their philosophy or whatever that they need to reconcile are uh, the creation that God is in some sense like a part of creating the world. Uh, and probably I would say, I guess you could say, and, and sort of materially involved with the Israelites life, 
right? So, so that too. So that's got to be God, the father, right? Mm -hmm. Then Jesus, the resurrection eventually coalesces in people believing like, oh, that Jesus was God. So then that's the second. So then we have to make sense of that. And then the Holy Spirit is just, and God is like working here now kind of a thing. And that's probably like theologians listening are probably like, wow, Dan, that's a, (laughs) it's like a play school version of Trinitarian thinking, but that's how I think of it. And so then I just go, okay, well, sure. Like that's what that language is for. And I, I literally, I just like never think about it. I never think about Trinitarian stuff. It doesn't bother me. I, I think of it as essentially like well above my pay grade to know anything about it. But I recognize that the language is there to explain Christians experiences with those three ways of being with God. And probably if we didn't think Jesus was God, we would just the father and the Holy Spirit would be the same. That would be fine. That would be pretty easy to square. Uh, like, okay, because how's God interacting with Abraham? Well, that could just, that's the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that's all just, that's all just Jehovah, you know, whatever. We got it. But then Jesus complicates it. So now we need this thing. But yeah, I don't know. So how, how does that hit you? Like, what how what are you thinking or feeling as I drastically lower the stakes for every Christian in the world on the Trinity? <laughs> I mean, I think you're right. But if you had felt the way I feel now, then it wouldn't have broken your mind because you it wouldn't the stakes would be lower, I guess is what I'm saying. That's the part I'm trying to get. Yes and no. Okay. Because I agree, but the reason that it ended up being the thread is because I actually kind of ended up where you are. Mm. But to do Catholicism correctly, I can't. I couldn't. You have to take it seriously. It's it is a core tenet, and so I, that was when I was like, okay, so I can't get on board. That would be like being a Catholic and not believing fully in transubstantiation. But do you think, like my guess though, is that that is probably more true of a Catholic theology student than a Catholic. I absolutely agree. Okay. But also that's just how I function. Like, sure. as a- well, I, I, I relate to that of course, as well, obviously like this, I have to figure this stuff out. And the fact that I have come to that low stakes version of the Trinity is only through a, a lot of trial and error of trying to get to something that does not cause me anxiety yeah. you know, kind of a thing. So, okay. So that as a Catholic theology student or just a, a Catholic person who is interested in that stuff and wants to, be involved with the theology and you're, you're thinking about the Trinity as you're taking the Eucharist, even though almost no one next to you is thinking the same stuff you're thinking. I mean, when I, I would sponsor people for confirmation and that involved a lot of like discussing theology. Mm -hmm. And one thing I always hammered on was that you cannot be a Catholic. If you even a little bit, when you take the Eucharist think that it is not actually blood and body because it is functionally it might still look like it but that is the blood and that is the body because that's what the theology is transubstantiation happens it is not a metaphor it is real and if you don't believe that then you should not take the eucharist i know most catholics do not really believe that Mm -hmm. but that's like how i was because i was like if i'm being told that this is the like this is what you have to believe 
in order to fully experience the Catholic faith, then I'm going to fully buy in. And when I couldn't fully buy in, I started pulling on it. And of course, I know that most most people who are taking communion are not like, I'm now drinking blood. Right. That's not how people work. Your brain can't think that way. They like say they believe it, but if they really thought about it, they'd be like, nah, like that's, that's just shitty wine. But the way that my brain works is that like, I'm being told that this is high stakes. So I'm going to take it at face value. And it was like pretty simple for me. I couldn't get on board with the Trinity. And then I was like, okay, so that kind of rules out Catholicism for me. And then I started thinking about why. And then I started thinking about the context behind all of this and how bogged down I had become in kind of untangling these archaic uh, debates and how weighted down I had gotten in words. Like I would do an exegesis on, you know, a sentence that would take me a week and Part of that is so fun. I mean, there's still a lot of stuff I like about that. Yeah. It had taken me away from, I think, the part where I live and uh, connect to something cosmic. You know, I had gotten so into the minutiae that I had kind of lost and so into the self-discipline that I actually hadn't like gotten to touch anything bigger than myself or even feel that. So at first when I stepped away... I wasn't doing it because I like, you know, it was like, well, it has to be the Trinity or nothing. It was just like, wow, I am, I'm probably not, I probably can't stand the Catholic church to be honest. And I was like, but before I like even make a move, I need to just step back, take a breather and take in the forest. And once I started doing that, that ended up, I, I mean, Dan, I, you talk about like you, you simplified your language. I simplified everything down to like, I basically am like the idiot's guide for spirituality now. Like, I'm just like, whatever. <laughs> That's what, how you would describe your current faith is idiot's guide for spirituality. 100%. <laughs> I like, I'll go out into the forest and I'm like, mm, God is in the trees today. And just like, I'm going to let that just, that's what I believe right now. And that sounds, that feels great. Or like when people ask me, you know, if I believe in God anymore, I'm like, I'm only here for a second. And I just don't think you said that like Trini Trinitarian theology is above your pay grade. I now think that like even questioning the cosmic center of the universe is above my pay grade. I'm like, could be, who can say I'm only here for a second. I'm just going to try to be really nice to everybody. And like, I'm not going to do like Pascal's wager on this. I'm just going to be like the wager I'm making is that if I'm really kind to people and try to leave the earth a better place than how I found it, then whatever God exists, I hope is going to like let me into the party or not send me back here as a bug. That's all I can do. I just got tired. I like got tired and then kind of lobotomized that part of my brain that thought about this stuff all the time. If you love this podcast, if you find it helpful, I would love if you would consider joining the Patreon campaign. It is $7 a month, and it includes two, usually three, exclusive episodes per month for patrons only. 
It also includes ad-free episodes that sometimes even have a little bit more conversation in them that gets cut out of the main feed. And it includes access to the patron-only Facebook group. This seven bucks a month uh, helps us pay for work from Kristen and Josh, as well as putting my own time into the show. I also love getting feedback from patrons of the show, questions to answer in question and answer episodes, and all kinds of just information from you guys, responses, feedback to help us make this thing better. And I just, I love, frankly, I love interacting uh, with people in the Patreon community. Most of that happens on Facebook, but I also will comment on posts on the Patreon app. And you get, through Patreon, you get this special feed that you can put into your regular podcast player that allows you to hear those patron-only episodes. You don't even have to go anywhere weird to hear them. It's all right there. It's very simple. And you can feel good. You can feel real good about supporting something basically DIY. This is something that we make ourselves. We're not connected to any corporation or company. Uh, and it's just very, very appreciated. If you sign up for a full year, you also get something like two months free. So that's another option. If you know you're going to be here for a while, you can also at any time go in and change to that. Even if you are a regular monthly patron at this time. Okay. Enough of me jabbering and asking for money. It's not comfortable to do. Um, but I do truly, truly appreciate it. Okay, back to the episode. I recognize a very similar movement in myself over the last, I don't know, maybe like five to 10 years where the minutia, the kind of getting in the theological weeds stuff my interest in that has gone down considerably, and I think it's sort of twin reasons that reinforce each other. The one is what we've been talking about, which is kind of what's above our pay grade. I, I do think it's for people who need theological language, it's good to have alternatives that feel like they fit your experience better, and theology being faith-seeking understanding, or as I would say it, faith spiritual experiences seeking language to describe them or some, something like that, right? I think that that's really necessary. And I'm very grateful to the work of theologians for providing people with that, yeah. myself included. The other reason that I've gotten less, but but like that said, I hold those, theolo I, I like the term theopoetics a lot these days because that is closer to the way I use theology is that, I use it as poetry, uh, literally much like I would read poetry before praying or meditating. Like theology is like language that helps me kind of envelop my spirituality, my deepest values in art, like, like the way a good painting would do or a great film. Like that's more the role than I have planted my staff in the sand on these abstract claims. So that's the first one. And then the second stream is that I've gotten more and more interested in, in kind of more practical, like this worldly testable stuff, which is why I've, you know, that's why I'm getting a doctorate in psychology. It's why I love doing therapy with people. It's why I have become more and more interested in like careful empirical research to sort of uh, back things up or give us a better, clearer picture of the world. What's funny is that like, 
that research is one of the main things that's kept me uh, so interested in and committed to a religious life because the research is quite pro-religion. There are important areas where it tends to hurt people, and that's mainly around in-group, out-group bias and, and stuff like that. But taken as a whole, you know, you were I, – I almost made this joke or comment back when you were talking about being a nerd in high school and not swearing and drinking and <laughs> stuff. And I was like, I'm, I'm glad you didn't drink. I, I hope no teenager ever drinks. It is they're poisoning their brains while their brains are developing and making themselves more likely to become alcoholics. Like it's not good. It's not good that teenagers drink. I know there are a lot of good fucking movies about teenagers <laughs> drinking, and I love Days and Confused probably more than the next guy. But it is not actually <laughs> healthy for them. I hope my son doesn't drink when he's a teenager. You know, I, I'll give him a sip of my beer. But like, you know what I'm saying? So yeah, that all that stuff. Um, anyway, that was a lot. Feel free to respond. No, I think that a religious life is so fascinating because, yeah, I've looked at that research, too. And this is why if someone tells me that, like, I still have a lot of friends who are practicing, I mean, various religions, right? One of the reasons I was asked to write that Mars Hill piece is because I am about as far left as you can get. Uh, and I have not believed in God for a long time. And those two things in Seattle don't normally add up to like someone who can write about a church with a fair and like balanced <laughs> opinion. Right, right, yeah. My editor at the time, Sean, was like, you are uniquely suited to do this investigation because you are friends with Christians. And I was like, I sure am. And I think it's important to be because one of the main benefits of a religious life is community and a sense of meaning. People like really, you know, and that's the big struggle I see with my friends who have left church is finding meaning. When I decided to live for a while, like there was no God. One of my biggest concerns was finding like meaning and significance. Um, I was worried that that just like wouldn't exist anymore. You know, and I see with my friends who are still practicing like a Judeo-Christian faith or some of my friends who practice kind of more on the spirituality side, like those benefits are still coming through for them. And mm -hmm. frankly, at this point in my life, I'm just really happy to see anybody finding like positive meaning in their life, whether or not it's right. I think the main thing is that I've just let go of the idea that I'll ever know and just be really happy for people who like have a sense of like purpose and divine inspiration in their lives. And I just like, I'm just not as concerned with being right as I used to be. I used to love debating and like, yeah. Oh yeah. Like, and I still love discussing and being like, eh, I don't really believe in this. And like, cause I don't, I don't believe that Jesus died for our sins and was resurrected. I just don't believe that that happened. Am I open to one day dying and being like, Ooh, my bad. Like totally. Because how would I, again, I'm only here for a minute. I don't know, but that's just my instinct. And so when someone's like, well, I believe that that's true. I'm like, sick. I hope that that's true. I feel like I have like, I've banked enough goodwill with Jesus that like I have a better chance of getting into heaven than I do if like a different religion is true. Because like if Hinduism is the way that things are happening, then I'm screwed because I know nothing. <laughs> but that's only if that prerequisite is about knowledge, which it probably isn't. And Jesus didn't sure didn't seem to think so. 
No. But so this is where it's interesting because I and it, it's interesting that you were involved with Jesuits because in terms of kind of comparing and contrasting our own stories and outlooks, it's like the Jesuit that I was hanging out with and then listening to like James Martin, who's a Mm -hmm. popular, you know, LGBTQ advocate, Jesuit guy in New York, Stephen Colbert's priest, Mm -hmm. you know, like they're the way that those guys see the world is God in all things. That is the Jesuit sort of phrasing it's almost like a similar move that you've made, but it's like a mirror move with a lot of the same benefits where for me, it's like, Oh, so when I have a client, for instance, who is describing their faith in like way more simplistic kind of terms than I would be comfortable with and probably believing things that I think are false, but I see how it is aiding in their resilience or they're recovering from trauma or they're making meaning out of their suffering because they're low income and they've been handed this shitty debt hand out of the deck. And like what, where I'd rather go is like, Oh, they're, they're also right. Like they're also right in whatever way it matters to be right for the moment right now. And maybe they will, grow beyond that. And maybe they won't because they are not as interested in theology as I am or something, but I'm led to more inclusivity around this stuff. And, and I just imagine like, there's a way that it's true. There's a way that whatever language people are using since language is so inadequate, since it is above my pay grade, that actually allows me to be more open to more formulations of, of God or people's experiences with what they think is God and like be able to affirm it and like chill out in my own mind and not have an internal debate with them about it. So that's like one thing. The other thing is that so much of the Christian language and ritual and, and teachings and, the life of Jesus and stuff like so much of that still resonates with me and sort of vibrates more strongly than almost anything else. So maybe leaving that to the side, but I want to talk about that first bit about like expanding that tent so wide. Now to some people that would say, well now, now it's nothing. Now it's meaningless. So none of it means anything, but I don't think so. I think it's about the inadequacy of human language to get at the depth of human experience. Yes. You know what I'm saying? And I think it's the, we don't have the language and we don't know enough. And that's like, we'll just never know enough. Agreed. And that, I think that like that could, that can sound despairing, but I think it's actually such a relief. Like, I feel like I, the only way I can ever learn more about like the nature of the universe, which the only way for me to do that is through people is for me to learn from other people's experiences. And I was shut off to doing that when I was a theology student, because I thought that the answers were in this very narrow world. And this is not like a pantheistic, like a viewpoint that I have now. It's actually not believing, definitely not believing in like salvation. That's one thing I've ruled out entirely of my life. Um, is the idea of salvation. 
meaning that like some people are saved and some are not saved or what about everybody is in some sense saved, whatever that means. Yeah. There's, that's kind of where I've landed. I just like, you know, there's a lot of othering language that comes out of salvation. Like, you Mm -hmm. know, we'll call some people monsters and I'm like, well, the problem is, is that nobody's a monster. The problem is, is that the worst things that people do also live in us. And we lose that when we start splitting off into like, yeah, I think exclusivistic tendencies in any religion are too easily explainable by human psychology to be likely to be accurate. So for me, to be clear, that was one of the first things that changed for me when I was about 22 is I became a universalist Hmm. and I was like, okay, well, if, if anyone's saved, everybody is saved, whatever that's, whatever that's going to mean. And now my, my hold on what that might mean is more tenuous than it was at 22, but I've never gone back to no, probably some people are damned. (laughs) You know, I don't, that's not, that's not what it's about. So it is about the here and now, you know, it's going to be probably the entire class will have aired by the time this airs. But as we are recording this, uh, I'm gearing up for a four week, like online reading group with my buddy Trip Fuller, who uh, hosts the Homebrewed Theology podcast. He's a mainline Protestant, you know, progressive clergy, doctor of philosophical theology. Anyway, Trip and I are doing a, a class on existentialism in psychology and theology mm. and sort of putting uh, Irvin Yalom, who's the psychotherapist, and Paul Tillich, the theologian, in conversation with each other around sort of what is the human existential problem and what's the solution to that problem. And so I'm, I'm pretty firmly in that, in that world. Like I, I, I do – what I hear in a lot of what you're saying is that – uh, one of the things that your faith allowed you to do was sort of sidestep some of those existential questions. And and now after faith, you are having to confront them. And my version is not too dissimilar. It's the changes in my faith have, which is still intact in a different way. I cannot sidestep those existential questions anymore either. And I have to face them where you find the difference is like, whereas Irvin Yalom would say, it's obvious that there is no God and that humans make our own meaning. And, and like, we just, we have to learn to face that there is no light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. I would say as a Christian existentialist, I would say, I cannot know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. As I am facing the, the core existential questions of humanity, I will draw strength and language and hopefully inspiration and peace from the idea that I believe there is light at the end of the tunnel, that there is God's holy mountain someday, that children born into slavery, that that's not all completely in vain, that there is some economy in which that works out and, and pays off. It, it's not something that humans can bring about. So I really hope that it's something that God will do, but I don't know that it's what God will do. And I, I, I think that psychologically, the way I have to engage with the inevitability of my death, finitude, my, you know, my choices, my freedom of will and meaning making and all that stuff. I think it's the same as an atheist existentialist, because all I'm getting is like a, a big maybe, it's not, there's no, yes, there's no certainty. It's a big, maybe it's a big hope. Uh, and I think that there's a lot of power in that hope. And I also think that the arguments against that hope are not very strong, just like Mm -hmm. the arguments 
for certainty of that hope aren't also not. Neither of those arguments are good. No one knows. That's my view. None of us fucking know. And so I, I actually think that 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 existential boat is quite similar for you and I. The difference is, do we draw on the Christian tradition in a straightforward way? As we answer and try and face those questions, does that, I mean, do you think that's true? I think that's really true. I think that for me, I think this is part of being also just like true to yourself as you get, as, and as you get older, this is the thing. My biggest argument for the idea that mystery is the truest thing, that not knowing is the wisest thing is that the older people get the less they know. Yeah. The certainty is the purview of the very young, like what we were talking about earlier when like, you know, the most pious I've ever been was when I was 18. That's the only time you can reasonably be that sure of something. Mm -hmm. And if the older we get, the less we are comfortable knowing, then that to me speaks to mystery being the, the correct way. And that's like, so drawing from the Christian tradition in that, like while living in that mystery, feels just as valid as, you know, me drawing on, honestly, just people. Like, this is why I like talking. This is why I have friends who are all over the map because I, like, I'm kind of, I get excited to be like, one day I'm going to die and then I'll know. Mm. Like, even if it's like, I'm going to die and then there's nothing, I'll still know. Like it just won't be around. I think of that one as then I won't know and I won't care. Yeah. (laughs) That's how how I phrase the other, the alternative. Yeah. I'm like, what's the worst case scenario? Just like gentle oblivion. That's fine. Well, the worst case scenario is, is torment in hell. And that's why we have to work through that. Because if any part of you really believes that, then it fucks with all the math and all the odds because infinity can't be divided by anything. You know, it can't, nothing can approach infinity if you really believe that. But just like you were saying how so many Catholics don't really believe transubstantiation, like so many Protestants don't really believe all their neighbors are going to hell either. Like they don't live as if that's true. So there, I think there are certain kind of reasoning limits for human minds beyond which most people can't really go there or they can't stay there for very long. It's sort of too overwhelming. And so we just have ways out of it as we continue to use our faith to explain our experience. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I feel like you and I are approach at very similarly. It's just like at the core, you are a Christian and at my core, I'm not. Yeah. But like, and that, that as I, you know, as you dig into it, those differences don't actually seem to materially mean a lot as like, as you really relate to people. Cause the thing is, is that my whole thing is I don't like people who are rude. I like people who are thoughtful and who ask big questions without getting too attached to being right. And those like people come from everywhere. And then there are people who think just like me. There are plenty of people who are, I would say, I I like to say I'm an atheist just because in the purest definition I am. And I think atheism has gotten a real gross reputation for being a bunch of dicks who want to like tell people <laughs> that they are stupid. Yeah. But when you, but when you engage in that, you know, spirituality for dummies, you know, whatever, <laughs> it's not exactly what you called it, but like it's the idiot's guide. That's like what's right, in my head. Every time I like think of anything cosmic, it's like in 
the dumbest possible terms. But do you think that those cosmic thoughts are true or do you actually think that they are probably just like a random byproduct of an unthinking evolutionary process that just happens to exist? And well, I'm grateful for them because at least I get to feel them. Or do you think that they conform in some way to something that is true of the universe? I'll give an example of like how I think about it. So I was running the other day on a trail and I was like not having a good time and my body hurt. And it's just like, I'm not a very good runner, but I just like to do it because I'm trying not to smoke anymore and running. And I was like not having a good time. So I decided to like stop at the top of this hill and like look around and just like take a minute and like not worry about continuing to go. I'll just like, okay, I'm just going to have a drink of water and like look around and just like, just try to center myself on being okay with not feeling good. Like sometimes you just got to be like, I'm just not going to feel good and that's okay. And I stood at the top of this hill and looked around and um, this person in my life popped into my head and right as they popped into my head, my phone buzzed and they texted me. And I was like, had this moment where I was like, this is like for me right now. Like, I can't see that as a coincidence. It's too beautiful. It was like an old friend of mine. And we text like, not, not often, but uh, it was definitely like, I hadn't heard, I hadn't heard from them in a few weeks. And I was like, that's too wonderful to be a coincidence. And I decided to believe that there is an energy that people can feel when you like think of them fondly and that like that can be a connection between two people. And I just was like, I believe that right now. And it made the rest of my run way better. I don't know if that's true. Yeah. Like it could be, it could be true. It could be true. Right. Like, cause sometimes it does feel true to me. Like that, there's a can there there are connections between people at great distances and you can like sometimes i do believe if i think about somebody enough that they will feel it and i don't know if that's true i do know it made my run way better i do know it put me back in my body in a positive way i do know that like it's a beautiful thought and i hope that's real isn't that a kind of pascal's wager obviously not with hell in the balance pascal's wager you know You have to have like a losing hand or like, you know, a consequence for the wager. I don't know. Well, the thing that I always think about with kind of my own Pascal's wager is not about waging my life and sort of getting rid of hell or whatever. I actually think of it as like the only Pascal's wager worth doing is like a win-win. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I actually think about my Christianity as essentially like a win-win Pascal's wager. I will, if I'm wrong, I will just cease to exist and I won't care and I won't know that I was wrong. But if I'm right, then I will have done a better job of aligning myself with, you know, whatever the ultimate reality is, assuming that I'm, assuming that I'm right about it being loving. I suppose it's possible I could be wrong in that there is an ultimate reality that's like about hatred or something. That seems very unlikely. But let's just say that the options are a loving God or it's not, there's nothing, you know kind of a thing. It seems win-win to me 
to like now, not if I'm going to lean into or have my family lean into the darker parts of religion, not if I'm going to lead them into a spiritually abusive environment. Of course, there are these caveats, but but as a spiritual abuse researcher, I feel like decently confident I can have a decent set of red flags around that kind of thing. So I don't think that that's what I'm leading my family into. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, my children, my wife makes her own decisions, but like, I think that's a win-win. I think for you, it's a win-win. Like what would be the, what would be the consequence of being wrong about that? You know what I mean? Yeah. I think, I think I do believe that. I just don't know if that means that the guiding force of the universe is like a cosmic energy. I don't know if that for me coalesces into sure. God. It's just mm-hmm. like, I think that I'm atheist because I don't know if any of the beliefs I have kind of like coalesce into like one guy. But I will say that the more I kind of engage with those moments and I think the same way you do, I'm like, well, what's the fucking harm? And being like, there's an energy here and it's connecting me to somebody I love. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to fucking believe that. Like, I just don't then attach any other like, like systematic belief system to it. And I'm just like, I'm just think I'm just going to believe in beautiful things. This is why I call it the idiot's guide because I'm like, and then I take it no further. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm just like, well, there's an energy. It could be the Holy ghost. Sure. Sometimes just like the emotional experience of like something cosmic like that is so like, that's what's nourishing for me now is like experiencing like a moment of like wonder and being like, oh, right, the world is wonderful. We're not just like, we, we might just be like a meat car, bag of bones. And then, but then this like meat car gets to like drive around and experience tiny little miracles. And I don't know if I want to ruin that with thinking anymore. <laughs> I thought way too much and it didn't enhance my experience of like a spiritual life. It did because I do the same way you talked about, you know, theological poetry and being so grateful that there have been thinkers that have helped us untangle this. I, I also think it's really important. I also love Paul Tillich and like, I still read, I think there's like some of those beautiful writing is writing on, on religion and spirituality because it's writing on like the basic human condition and relationship and fear of death and embracing death. One of the most incredible things I think people do is embrace our own deaths and whether we do that, through tiny little miracles in the forest or through Christianity, I think it's beautiful and I love reading about it, but sometimes I just don't need to think anymore. I need to experience things. And historically, I think I haven't found religion to be sometimes a great uh, vehicle for me to experience my life. Yeah. It sounds like for you, it was really kind of bound up with a lot of thought and a lot (laughs) of sort of, certainty and abstract system creation and, you know, building all this scaffolding and that that's partly your story. It's partly the way you're wired personality wise. It's, it's all these things. And I think what's interesting for me, like entering this sort of midlife version of my faith is in fact, the thing I'm finding most helpful about continuing a Christian practice is, is how much less I'm thinking about all of that stuff and finding that it is more poetic, it is more like, um, you know, you talked about doing the Kairos, that's like a rite of passage, right? It's like, a, it's a thing you do at a certain developmental stage, just like First Communion is for Catholics and going through 
confirmation and all that stuff. Like though, those types of things, rituals like that, having this scaffolding instead of having to do it from scratch. And I know that that's a straw man. Those are not the only two options, but, but given how I don't know, fucking busy my family is like, it's not like we have a lot of bandwidth to, to try out new things that are like relatively untested. And, and so it's kind of awesome to have this wisdom tradition from which I can pick out 10 to 50 voices that make sense to me that, you know, are more or less in alignment with scientific consensus, more or less in alignment with sort of the, who appear to be the wisest people in my life, you know, and all that stuff. So it's interesting. I think that it's playing a different role for me than it does for you really feeling the opposite of what you're describing these days of like, I'll just go to the compline service at St. Mark's and I just, I have like no thoughts about doctrine (laughs) for 30 minutes. I'm just like in this cavernous concrete with a giant wood ceiling cathedral, listening to these voices bounce off of it, singing classical music and the Lord's prayer. And I'm just like, what a fucking cool mystery to be a part of. Like, I'm connected back to 30,000 BC humans, like making sounds in caves where the reverb makes it sound bigger than it is. Like, I'm just like in all that and stoked on it. And I didn't used to be like five, 10, certainly 10, 15 years ago. I'm so caught up in the particulars in a way that I really resonate with the way you described it. And I, I think I'm just not there anymore. And so that's that's interesting and i think that's becoming clear yeah i i mean i really like the fact that i think if you talk to most people who were like still who still are interested in you know spirituality and theology everyone i think goes through a phase of just being a real bummer about it (laughs) sure yeah also anyone who goes to grad school (laughs) (laughs) speaking from experience I think I would have become so insufferable had I actually gone to grad school. You get through that dark night of the grad school soul, though. You know, you come out the other end. I mean, I dropped out of school. I, I went back a little bit. Um, I went to Seattle U when after I moved here and I like picked it, picked up my degree again, which my college was not Jesuit. My first college was not. It was diocesan. And then I went back to a, you know Seattle U as Jesuit and yeah. I almost finished. And then I got offered a marketing job and I was like, well, I don't believe in this stuff anyway. So I'm going to drop out again. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. It, it, it's a, a theology degree is a super weird degree to have. If you're not going to go, it's basically only to go to grad school or yeah. I mean, even in Protestant cases, you usually need an MDiv unless you're going to be evangelical, then you probably didn't need to go to college anyway. Yep. Uh, and so yeah, theology degree not the most widely applicable, nor was my philosophy degree, which is why I'm glad I went to grad school. Anyway, Kathleen, thanks so much, man. What a fun conversation. And I think clarifying for me and, and really enjoyable. Thanks for being yeah. honest and, and vulnerable and, and clear. Thank you. This is this is so fun. I love it's been a while since I've kind of thought about kind of my journey with this. And it was super fun and also fun to just like chat with you more. I appreciate it. I'm going to put a link. We'll put a link to your, to that stranger article. We didn't end up talking all that much about the Seattle Marcel thing, which is fine. 
it's a, it's just like a very thoroughly researched article. I think it, for people who are, who still have interest in that Mars Hill story, you bring in sort of the role of the city council, the role of these all ages music venues, uh, which, you know, that is just very much the water I grew up in. I, I had the, the San Jose, California version of that, the Bay area version, which was inspired by Berkeley and Gilman street and all that stuff. But a lot of churches were involved there too. It's a really important time in my life. And so I, I enjoyed just reading your reporting on that as well. It's obviously the piece is it's about eight years old now, but uh, it's still very much worth reading. So we'll put that in the notes. Thanks, Dan. 